The Bible says that with the presence of God, there's no darkness at all. 1 John 1.5 says, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. 1 Timothy 6.16, God alone possesses immortality and dwells in inapproachable light. So it's very understandable that when we read the very first verse of the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible, we see that God brings light with him. Light exists where God exists. Darkness is evaporated. Let me take you back to Genesis 1. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. This is not the solar light, what we call the sun, that was not created until the fourth day. This is the light of God's presence. Where God is, there is no darkness. There's only light. There is no shadow. So the God who created light also created man and walked with man in the garden in the cool of the day, the Scriptures say. But man made a choice and chose sin and in rebellion rejected God. And so we're told with the fall of man, darkness once again entered the land and covered the planet. Romans 5.12, Through one man sin entered the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men. The darkness dominated for millennia upon millennia upon millennia. It continued to be a veil over the planet. The darkness associated with the sin would not remove itself. A promise remained, a promise from God that one day God would once again bring light into the world, that he would once again walk with men, that his light would be felt again. Some of the ancient prophecies read like this, this first one from Isaiah 9. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, that light will shine on them. That moment came. It came in one night, one night different than every other night that had ever existed in the history of the world before or since then. Why would that one night be so entirely different since before the time of creation? Because of God's purposes. God's purposes are always established. This is what Isaiah 46 says, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purposes will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So in one particular night, God sent blazing angels into the midnight sky. In the midst of darkness, light chased it away. The light of God came into that setting. The Ancient of Days showed his power. Angels who had just been in the presence of God in the very throne room of the Creator now glowed with the Shekinah glory they brought with them when they came to planet Earth, declaring news for men, declaring God's purposes of the end from the beginning. This particular prophecy would come true on that night that a child would be born and that God would once again bring his light back into the world, the one which existed before time, according to Micah. Micah 5.2, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. See, there's nowhere written that it has to be a silent night. You know that, right? Okay? It's not in the Bible. It's in a song. But it doesn't um, complicate things at all to make a little noise and celebrate. 
Leading up to Christmas Eve, um, we've been looking in the last couple weeks at the activity of God in his eternal purposes, how he laid his plans from before the foundations of the world in eternity past that are unfolding here in our lifetime today and certainly in the first century. Here's an example of that from Isaiah 46.9. My purposes will be established and I will accomplish all my God good pleasure. So our God laying it out for us that nothing that he plans to do goes undone. So when we think of God's supreme rule, we would say that the events which unfold in our world and which unfolded in the first century are to be understood as completely within the realm of his control, not simply an accident. So it shouldn't surprise us when a Caesar, a leader of a world empire, one of the world's great superpowers at that time, a Caesar of Rome issues a decree, he's fulfilling the plans that God laid out in eternity past when he asked that a census be taken, and that sets the wheels of God's great grace in motion, and it causes a young couple who live in northern Israel to pick up all of their belongings and head off towards this town called Bethlehem. It's all part of God's eternal plan. This is a part of his purposes, and they find themselves on a night like tonight in a sleepy little village. Now inside that sleepy little village, lots of residents resting for the night, not knowing what was going on with Mary and Joseph, of course. But outside the city, outside that village on the hill, we would find a group of shepherds. It's what I want to be the focus of our time tonight, because the arrival of nighttime for them brought the usual behavior. They would build a modest campfire. As it grew darker and darker, they would put the sheep down. Hundreds of sheep asleep on a hillside. Except for an occasional bleat, it is a silent night. They're resting. And the shepherds are talking very soft. The stars are piercing through the Middle Eastern sky. It's black, black night. And below them, they can see way down in the valley a village with lamps just flickering inside the window, dimly lit, individuals that are still awake. The men on the slope speak in a soft, slow, hushed, soothing voice. They don't want to disturb their livestock. Eventually, even the shepherd's voices grow still. They tug at their heavy cloaks, bringing them up around their neck to keep out the nighttime chill. They're settling in for a rest. Their eyes are accustomed to the incredible blackness around them. And occasionally they glance upon the hillside, looking at the sheep, making sure there's no wolves sneaking in. That's where we find ourselves in Luke chapter 2 and verse 8. Look along with me. Luke 2, 8, in the same region there were shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. Do you know that no one showed up to hang out with shepherds? They weren't on anybody's A-list. Nobody brought them a pizza in the middle of the night. These were individuals who were considered to be despised, yet they had a job to do. See, no one's ever been afraid of a sheep, okay? So sheep are easy to steal, especially for wolves. So they needed shepherds. They needed shepherds to be with them. However, shepherds were considered to be a very despised job. Fathers refused to teach their sons the skills of shepherding. For one reason, they were ceremonially unclean. 
the practice of their very job prevented them from even going inside the temple and worshiping. And they were also considered to be thieves. Many of them were outcasts from society. As a matter of fact, did you know the law actually said in the first century that you couldn't buy wool from a shepherd? Can you imagine that? You can't buy paint from a paint salesman? I mean, what's going on there? You can't buy wool from a shepherd because many people believed that the shepherds had stolen the wool from their master who owned the flock. And so you had to buy it from a middleman. So shepherds were on the fringe. They were what we would call the social outcast of society. They rarely ever went into town. So we find these individuals out on a field, probably somewhere between March and November most likely. That's when they grazed the sheep. That's when they took them up into the hills when the grass grew the best. And like most other shepherds, these particular shepherds that we discover tonight live their entire lifetime away from society. And what are they doing? They're keeping watch. They're doing guard duty. They don't want their livestock to wander away. They don't want to have to pay the penalty for that. And in a moment, in a flash, the hillside is completely flooded with light. 10,000 arc lamps could not match the intensity of this light. The light is initially so blinding that they can't even look at it by its extreme power. It causes them to turn their heads down. But as they raise their eyes up, they see a form in the middle of the light. In the middle of the brilliancy, they can see the shape of a being, not knowing what it is, but the form of a man in some shape. The light is amazing in itself. Because we understand there is no darkness with God, this glory light that is on these angels is so intense that as the shepherds turn, they see absolutely no shadow. They can turn 360 degrees and there's no shadow whatsoever. The light is that intense. That's where we move into verse 9. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. One moment... The shepherds are talking quietly. They're surrounded by the blackness of the winter sky. An explosion of light, and the hillside is ablaze. And just a single angel appears at that moment. And the shepherds are in terror. Let me explain to you what they saw. I don't know if you've ever seen this before in Scripture. The Bible says very clearly that Daniel had an eyewitness account in which he looked at an angel, and he gave us a description of what an angel looked like. Many times it doesn't match the artwork that you've seen. Look with me on the screen at Daniel 10.6. His body was like beryl, and that's meaning a translucent stone. You can actually see through it, but not completely. His body was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze and the sound of his words, like the sound of a tumult. You ever heard a tumult before? It sounds like thunder. A tumult is thunderous, so his voice is like rushing water. But it's not just the sight of the angel that terrifies them. It's the visible appearance of the glory of God. The Greek word that's actually used here is ephistomai, and it means that it's literally in their face, up close and personal. So this angel is towering over the top of them, yet he's right here in front of them. And it's very difficult to explain, but what they see in the midst of it is this incredible brilliance of God. How do you measure the brilliance of God's appearance? Well, Revelation gives us a clue. Revelation says that the appearance of God is brighter than the noonday sun. Ever looked in the noonday sun? You have to turn your eyes away. Not only will it damage your retina, it hurts. 
So God's appearance is so intensely bright that it actually even radiates to the angels. We're told that the angels bear this same intense bright glory. Look with me up on the screen because this is an example of when Jesus was resurrected. An individual stood and they saw angels, Luke 24.4. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. The word that's used is a strapo, and the word actually means lightning. They flashed like lightning, that brilliant of an image. And in this case, the light shines completely around them. This same light came upon the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament, the intense brilliance of God's glory. This same light enveloped Jesus on resurrection morning, surrounding him in an envelope. This is the brilliance of the Shekinah glory. Look with me on the screen as a reminder. 1 Timothy 6.16, God alone possesses immortality and dwells in inapproachable light. So the result is predictable, is it not? Horrifying terror for the, angel, or for the shepherds. Looking at this, they're screaming like schoolgirls. They're looking at this image and they don't know what to do with it. Fear with great fear is what the Greek language says. It's the natural reaction any one of us would have when we're brought into the presence of the God of wonders. And that's what you see going on. And in that moment, a thunderous voice begins to roar. It waves right across the valley floor, up against the hillside, and echoes back. It causes the stream to actually ripple in the water. It's trembling, and the being speaks to them. It's soothing, yet commanding at the same time. Verse 10, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So the angel's announcement at the very hour that he's speaking to them, something planned from before the foundations of the world in eternity past is happening right now. It's unfolding in your midst. The consummation of the ages begins tonight. That's what they're being told. This angel had landed the greatest assignment of all the angels. He got to come and make the announcement that the king has arrived. I bring you good news. Evangelizo is the word in Greek. You might be familiar with it in the English language, to evangelize. It's where the root comes from, from evangelicals. It means to bring good news. I bring you good news. I evangelizo you. For who? For all the people. Not just for the good people. That's not what Scripture said. I'm not bringing this news for the good people, the one who behave well. I'm bringing it for all people. That would mean everyone on the planet, shepherds to kings, Walmart to Wall Street, everyone's included. And the joy is intensified when he says, it's megas, it's great joy. I bring you good news of great joy. What magnificent news, church for those who feel like they're alienated from God. That might be where you're at tonight. You might be saying, I can identify with those shepherds. I feel like I'm outside looking in. Perhaps you find yourself not necessarily on speaking terms with God. Perhaps you find yourself as someone who's got a past full of brokenness. 
Perhaps you find yourself as someone who would say, I'm damaged goods. How could God possibly want to take me in? That's why he said this is for you. Born for you, a savior. Not just for Mary and Joseph, but for you, all of us. And then the angel utters the words which all of creation has waited to hear. All of creation since the veil came upon the earth when sin entered the world. He says, he is Christos Kurios Mashiach. He is the Messiah, Christ the Lord, the one who has come to redeem us. Do you notice that Jesus at his birth is already Christ the Lord? He didn't have to earn it. He's born to it. He is Christ the Lord. The one born in Bethlehem is the same one who's raised in glory from the angel's own lips. Go with me to verse 12. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Now at this point I'm thinking, I don't need another sign. I got the angel. What's the purpose of another sign? There must be a reason for it, but I mean, we've got a pretty great sign here. The towering angel, and you're telling me I need another sign? Well, the clothes and the manger constitute a sign. That's what the angel said. See, the babies were wrapped in strips of very long clothing, and they were wrapped tightly. And it wrapped them up so tightly that they would feel like they're still in the mother's womb. That was the purpose of swaddling clothing, so that they would feel the security and comfort but typically you didn't find a baby in a stall in a barn. You ever been to a feeding trough in a barn? It doesn't look like the nativity scene you have in your living room, okay? They're not that clean. So that's the sign. Why, though? I see in the midst of this that God wants them to investigate the truth. It's one thing to have the angels stand there and proclaim it, but God gives them an opportunity to back it up. Go investigate it. See if the things that I'm telling you are true. You'll find a baby. This will be a sign wrapped in swaddling clothes. He's going to be laying in a food trough. That in itself would be shocking. So this baby is not born in Bethlehem Memorial Hospital this night. That's not where they're going to find him. He's going to be in a manger. And in the midst of this, what you see is an exercise of investigation. They have to check it out themselves. And at this moment... The shining angel then begins to draw himself up with his arms praising towards God, his wings completely unfurling, and we understand the radiance of his being intensifies so that it reveals legion upon legion of angels completely surrounding the pasture land. This verse that shows us next that God's armies themselves surrounded this environment. Go with me to verse 13. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And it happened suddenly. Exphiphanes, the same suddenness by which the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, the same suddenness by which Jesus showed up in front of Saul on the road to Damascus instantly, the same suddenness that Thessalonians says that Jesus will return with in his second coming, exfibonates instantly the presence of God. 
a multitude of the heavenly host surrounding them on every side, 360 degrees, every place they could look, these monstrous beings, 10,000 times 10,000, a multitude of stradia. What is stradia? The word host is used in the Greek language, translated over to English, but it means an army. What you're seeing is the armies of God. And what are they doing? They're shouting in unison, a shout of triumph. The sound reverberates off the hills. The thunder can be felt on the floor. They can feel the vibration like a summer storm rolling across the land. And their voices in unison with one enormous voice, glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. And their voices cause the ground to tremble. So much so that the shepherds collapse out of fear. They're quaking, Scripture says, with great fear causing them to do what we would do if we were there. Because Isaiah wrote about the same environment, Isaiah chapter 6. He said that he stood before God's throne room in heaven. And when the angels yelled out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the entire threshold of heaven shook with the vibration of the sound. How much more so when a myriad of angels stand there in front of these ones, the armies of the living God yelling, glory to God in the highest. Men here, if you've ever had a problem feeling like praising God isn't very manly, remember this moment, okay? This will remind you. This are the warriors. These are the warriors here. And feel the raw emotion. Utter joy with utter terror. At the same time, and if I'm there, I'm thinking, okay, breathe, 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 because I don't want to pass out. You can imagine their temptation. What are they seeing here? They can scarcely comprehend. Again and again, the waves of praise wash over the land, bouncing off the hillside, and that's all they can hear is the utter joy being lifted up to praise God. It begins to diminish And in the distance, they can hear glory, glory, and it's over. The light's gone. Praising God should be the response of all believers. Do you know that's what Scripture tells you? That when you sing songs like Michael leads us in, to fill your lungs and sing full voice. Look with me up on the screen at Psalm 148.1. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His host. That's the armies. Why? Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. As fast as the light came, it vanishes. And if the shepherds had ever felt the darkness of night before, it must have been doubly intensified at that moment. Their eyes attempt to redilate, to adjust to what's going on around them. And under their breath you can hear, angels, 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 the armies of God. They know what they've seen. Do you notice, church, that the first invitation was given to those on the outside of society. Those who were the outcast looking in. The very first invitation from God himself, invited by the living God to join him in his work. 
to join him in his celebration. He's invited us to join him in his work and to rejoice as a result of it. Here's where it begins to end, verse 15. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. Did you ever notice that the shepherds have a choice? Nobody's forcing them to go to Bethlehem. Go back to work, go to Bethlehem. I don't know. Which is the higher calling? I'm glad they did what they did. So they came in a slow pace, right? No, they came in a hurry. You could find dozens of mangers all over Israel. You could find them in every village. Where do you go to find a manger with a newborn baby laying in it? They search the village, and apparently they make their way eventually, and they find the phenomena of the ancient prophecies written so long ago, merging with real-world events so that they can prove to themselves this thing that has happened, this word, is God literally speaking in my mind's eye. I see these weathered old shepherds kneeling before the manger with tears streaming down their faces. Grown men looking over the cradle, peering in to see a baby, and then trembling before Mary. Angels, angels, 10,000 times 10,000. And we were so scared. But we did what they told us. We've come. Imagine this. Lamb herders kneeling before the Lamb of God. He gives you shivers. They're playing out what God had purposed in eternity past. Were the shepherds silent about what they had heard? This is where it ends. Scripture says, verse 17, when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. They became the first evangelicals of the first century. They spread the news abroad to everyone, and everyone who heard them were amazed at what they had to say. Thamadzo. They were shocked. Men at the bottom of the social scale became the preacher for the king of kings. But Mary, verse 19, treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen just as had been told to them. What the angels had done first, the shepherds now do themselves. I doubt that they sounded as good as the angels, but they did what they could with the voices that they had. They're telling everyone. So in the final scene, we see the shepherds climbing back up the hill, returning to their job. And what are they doing on the job site? praising God for everything that they knew. I'm going to speak to two groups tonight specifically because we always have two groups of individuals in a setting like this. First, to those who are not sure that you believe everything that you're hearing. Perhaps you've never really given your life to Jesus Christ before. You hear people singing around you tonight and you wonder, do those people really mean what they're singing? 
Or are they just doing it? Is that story real? I'm going to invite you tonight to do what the shepherds did, to investigate the truth. In your bulletins tonight, when you came in, we put little inserts in there written by Billy Graham. Methods by which you can know whether or not Jesus is really the King of Kings. You can read through it when you get a chance. I invite you to do what the shepherds did. They went to Bethlehem to investigate. Investigate God's Word. Do that for yourself. It's the greatest story in the history of the world. It deserves your time and your attention. Second group, believers. Do you notice what the shepherds did? They communicated to everyone how great the truth was. When you get together with your friends and your family, your coworkers, perhaps over the next week or perhaps tomorrow, don't hesitate to be bold to do what the angels did and what the shepherds, the brand new believers did. Great joy. I'm going to tell you about this. Joyful praise in the midst of your earthly business. Whether you're associating with friends and family or whether you go back to the job site, take it with you. Spread the news. So in a moment, we're going to have you stand up and we're going to sing together. Michael's going to lead us in a couple closing songs. It's going to be boisterous. Here's your opportunity. If you're investigating and you would like somebody to pray with you, you would like an opportunity just to talk with someone about the things that you've heard tonight, there'll be individuals standing on either side of the front of the auditorium tonight. I'll be there with them. And you just make your way out of the pew at the point when everybody stands up to sing, slide across. Come over and talk to us. We'd be happy to pray with you. Right now, what I'm going to ask you to do is just bow with me and pray. We'll ask for God's blessing on our time together. Would you do that with me? Father, we stand before you, we bow before you as individuals who've come in here tonight not knowing what to expect, but filled with a sense of anticipation. There's also a sense of anticipation about what tomorrow brings. For some, it's fear. For some, it's great peace. God, I ask right now that in the midst of this room that your spirit would be felt that your presence would be known, especially by those who are broken of heart, Father. For those who feel like they're damaged goods, that they could possibly never be loved by you, God, assure them that your love knows no bounds, that you've promised to separate our sins as far as the east is from the west. God, I ask that you would assure them of this. Finally, Father, I ask that you would give courage where fear might be currently present. For individuals who are even afraid to come up to the front to talk with someone, God, I ask that you would give them courage to investigate the claims of Scripture. God, as we sing now, as we lift our voices together, as you hear from your church, may you hear the unbridled enthusiasm of those who are redeemed because of what our King of Kings did for us. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.